But that's when things started to go downhill. I always thought that once I reached that goal, I'd be really happy. I, I've made my million, that's it. And it wasn't. Obviously, I've got some questions in my mind. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you just want to find out a little bit about you. Um, so what are you currently doing right now? Um, well, currently, I, I, I'm retired. I don't know how I was going to say this. I just write books. I write uh, programs specifically for things like uh, emotional intelligence mapping. That's the, that's the big thing at the moment. This is the one that's been picked up by Barclays Bank. They're looking at doing a, a huge uh, social and corporate responsibility looking at how that they can be, how can we support people being more mindful in the workplace? Mm -hmm. so, so that's a big one for me. So you're retired, young to retire. <laughs> I, I retired at the age of 39. So I, I was very fortunate. And my journey sort of began at that stage. I always thought it was all about once I made, once I made a million, that, that was it, I can retire and finish. And I remember my father saying to me at the time, he said, you, you're too young to retire and you, you haven't got enough money. So I asked him, well, how much is enough? Is, is, is two million, three million? And he said, well, you've made your mind up, you know, you, you go and do what you have to do. But that's when things started to go downhill. I always thought that once I reached that goal, I'd be really happy. I, I've made my million, that's it. And it wasn't as much as I enjoyed the engagement with the children and, and the family time, I missed, I missed adult engagement. And I missed having a, a journey and it's at that moment, I think I probably recognized, probably after about six months of being quite depressed. And, and going through those struggles is when you recognize that getting to the end of the journey doesn't make you happy. It was the journey all along. Mm -hmm. So now I had to reinvent and find an, a new journey. And, yeah. and that's what led me to probably being much, much happier and, uh, and, and uh, content in my, my life at the time. Yeah, I can relate to that. I think a lot of people that have been in that situation that I've spoken to have said the same. It's almost mm -hmm. like their purpose, their meaning in life is now taken away from them and they don't really know how to navigate it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it's a kind of, what was the next stage from that? So you obviously said you sort of was in quite a dark place. What led you, what led you to this and the work you kind of do now? I was very fortunate that I've got a really strong, supportive family. And, and I think it was my wife who turned around and said, well, we need to find a way of adding value. And it, we were focusing on adding value to me or adding value to me, my family. But it was when that we decided to look at it differently and said, well, how can we add value to others? And that was probably the, the, the groundbreaking move. So after that, we started to, we, we created another company. We looked at, purely about adding value to everybody else. And that's probably where this whole thing has sort of snowballed, if you will. Mm. Can we talk about this for a minute? So this is obviously extremely detailed. Even I'm looking at it thinking, where do, where do I start? I mean, how did this come out of here <laughs> into this? Well, this is, this is it's not just, just mine. There were, at the time, there were four of us working alongside this and I wanted to find a way. I, we looked at the, the neurons in the brain, there's 86 billion neurons firing around in the brain, which is an enormous amount. And when it comes to our emotions, how they are mapped out is really convoluted. And then we looked at the Harry Beck method. Harry Beck was a, uh, a cartographer who basically made the London Underground map famous. And he took something like London, really convoluted areas, maze of, of where we get from A to B, and he simplified it. 
And then we just had this brainchild about why don't we just try and simplify emotions? Because that's something that a lot of people um, struggle to navigate. Yeah. And can you share a couple of examples of how someone would, would use this? I know I've seen a couple of your videos where you shared a couple of stories. So if, if I was maybe an employee struggling with, with stress, how can this kind of come into play? Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to share a, something very new, and this is called uh, emotional compartmentalization. It's a theory that I've, I've designed about how that we can compartmentalize emotions, not just put them to one side. I was with uh, a pair of clients, and um, at that time, my phone kept buzzing off in my bag, and normally it's on silent. Because it was so persistent, I asked permission, do you mind if I answer this call? Because um, it's my mum. No, no mum, I always answer. So I said, I'm really sorry. And they said, look, go ahead, please, Mr. Garner, answer your phone. And then I answered, and I'm in a, I'm in a Saudi Arabia, so you're a long, long way away from home. And she says at that moment, um, you, you just found out your dad's got cancer. This is last November. And my, to give some context, my mum and dad are my best friends. Mm -hmm. They're really, really important to me. And that was really hard to hear. And at that moment, because we'd already been doing work on compartmentalization of emotions, and I said, I, I addressed my, my client, and I said, now's the time we're going to do about emotional compartmentalization. He's like, He's kind of, are you sure? Is this, is this the right time? Mm -hmm. And I said, it, this is definitely the right time, because I've just got to get into a car shortly. And that's like a lethal weapon, particularly in Saudi Arabia, where they're driving is, um, you know, a little bit crazy sometimes. So then I talked to them. I said, well, and I got the math. And I went, so where do you think I was? And so there and then, you know, he started to um, start to point out different emotions. Uh, there was one that sort of made us laugh. He said when he said you're probably overwhelmed because mm. I can see you're about to cry any minute now. And that just made things worse. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but so I, yeah, it, it came in, so vulnerable, overwhelmed. And then he said, uh, you know, where are you, frustrated? And I said, yeah, because I'm, I'm here. I also felt, I felt guilty mm. because I'm so far away and that my parents need me right now. So I told them the technique of what we effectively do is we name the emotions, we verbalize them, and then we have a process of visualizing. Now I chose here, you can put them under your hat or anywhere, but visualizing your emotions. And now I'm gonna tell my emotions that it's okay to have them, you validate it, but I'm gonna be in a car shortly and I want you to stay put and I will unpack you when I get to my destination at a particular time. So once you've done that, they sort of stay there now you jump to pragmatism, which is this, this central part here. When you get there, what emotions would be best employed for me to drive? Well, if somebody starts flashing their lights or cutting me up, I'm going to have some consideration, some optimism, some hope that maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe there's some reason why they're driving like they are. And therefore, I'm, I don't react. You've almost pre-programmed yourself in a car. And sure enough, I jumped in the car and I'm driving and people did what they did, and I found myself smiling. I found myself really proud and content that I was able to be in control of my emotions instead of letting my emotions control myself. Mm. You then get to your destination, and like I've promised, we're going to unpack. I go up to my room, and we then, each emotion that I've already labeled, we literally 
and our visualization and verbalization, we pull out the emotions and say, and how I was feeling, and that was when I cried. Then, after I finished, I picked up the telephone and I had a conversation with my dad. That's amazing. Is that, is that just a, a natural thing for you to now start doing the more you kind of practice it? Because as you were saying, I, was, I can really relate because my, um, my brother, um, he's been in hospital since Friday, and this is my first kind of day back at work. And I wow. can completely relate to those emotions of like guilt, you know, overwhelm, where my mind's kind of on the phone over there in case my mum sort of messages. Um, and I do find it hard with the kind of detachment element of it. And I think you were kind of mentioning about how you unpack those emotions when Absolutely. you get there. That kind of sounds a lot like the whole detachment element of it as well. There needs to be, that, first of all, when it comes to emotions, you need to be able to detach but you must reattach. Otherwise, there's, there's like an emotional stagnant, stagnation. Yeah, so and this leads to this sort of um, uh, a stagnant fluid, if you will, inside that. Those are going to resurface if you had a cup here and you were just, if you stub your toe, there's a little pour of water. So if you can visualize a tap, and if we had a car accident, that's like turning this tap on, force it, really force and hits to the top of the cup, then it starts coming to fight, flight, flock, or freeze, those, those, uh, those responses. So noradrenaline starts pumping and you can't make effective decisions. However, this also happens when the so-called short-tempered people, they're not short-tempered, they just don't know how to process their emotions. And the drips have been formulating over a period of time and then something can happen. So you're out there, you're doing the dishes and you don't recognize that your cup is full. You break a dish and all of a sudden you go, ah, oh, and you break down in tears, or you shout, you scream, you start acting out at other people, and people will go, what's wrong with this person? Mm. You know, it was, and they see the one action and consider that's a reaction to that small act. When in effect, if they could, if I could look internally, you'd see there's a whole flask of emotions that have been pouring in over the days that you've just not been able to process effectively. Yeah. and. You know, again, I can relate to that, the whole kind of burying it, it kind of building up, building up, which is what I did, which I think my dad did, which a lot of people do. What's your kind of advice on dealing with that at the beginning? It's so tough. Mm. I, I think the, the first element is it's all very well and good telling somebody, say, go and talk to somebody, go and have some conversations. Because at that moment, you want to stay internalized. You don't want to open up those areas. Um, it's really difficult, but if you can find someone to connect with, that's what's really important. But it's how do you connect with the right person? Because often there's this massive difference between um, empathy, which is what you need at that time, than sympathy or people fixing your problems or you should do this or I'm so sorry for you or they try one-upmanship oh your dad guess what my dad and his brother died and then it's like straight away you've, you've stopped connecting and yet if somebody at that moment had just come to you and said um, I get it thanks very much for sharing it's so much more powerful because then that you've built the connection which means you can start then sharing in your time, not on somebody else's time frame. Whereas if you go to somebody, a specialist, and you try to say, I want to talk, it's, it's done on that level. Mm -hmm. So I think my advice would be um, 
try and find someone that you can connect with and that's it yeah and it'll come and you touched on empathy and sympathy then i think there's a there's a huge difference but i think it kind of blurs into one sometimes what, what would you say the difference is between empathy and sympathy sympathy is about feeling sorry for somebody and empathy is connecting nothing else somebody's just just about listening and understanding and it's almost like if I had glasses and I gave you my glasses, you would be able to see and say, well, yeah, welcome, welcome to Mr. Garner's world. And, and this is from just from the acetable lobe. But imagine if you could take my brain and put it in there and you could actually feel how I'm feeling. You would have a different mindset. And it's almost like, like I said, giving glasses and seeing different colors, smelling different smells, tasting different tastes and feeling different sensations. Mm. And that, that's the difference. Sympathy is... Um, Oh, I'm so sorry you had that experience, you know, and, and it, it's, it's not good enough. I, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I want you to be able to feel how I'm feeling because when that happens, I'm more likely to, to connect. Yeah, I think the big question here is, could any, could, can everyone adopt empathy, do you believe? Or is it just something that you're kind of, I don't know, you've developed over the years? You can definitely develop it. I, and I don't know if I should say this, this makes me look really bad. I had psychometrics done you know, many, many years ago on me. And um, they found that when it came to my empathy, I was quite low. Mm. And um, effectively what happens is this, uh, they'll be really shocked because this is what I do for a living. And the reason is I can engage in empathy. That means I've trained to understand and empathize, but my natural default setting might not be empathetic. And I have to continually do this over and over again. I have to practice empathy. Um, and I do this as much as I possibly can with as many different people from as many different, you know, as diverse as possible. So you can definitely enhance it. And there are some people who are just naturally gifted. Mm. Some people are amazing. Is there a downside to being empathetic as well? It's like, I believe what I've had to learn is the opposite. So I've always had strong empathy, but sometimes I take on people's problems and it weighs me down and it's sometimes too much. And I know sometimes with people that have a strong amount of empathy, they almost have to learn, as I said, the detachment side of it as well. It's, it's getting the balance, right? So what you've just said, I can really empathize with. Um, in my role, I have to empathize. Mm. And when you're there, you're looking at body language. I'm, I'm listening to tone of voice, pace of voice, intonation, um, looking for their body language, all these things. And it's quite intense. You know, your, your sessions are around about 45 minutes, anything longer than that. And it's quite mentally draining. So if you're doing this as a habit all the time, you're naturally training and focusing yourself. I can look at baristas in Starbucks, I can see people working on the tube, for example, and I'm constantly doing it. Because of that, you take on a lot of excess baggage. One of the things that I've noticed is when I come back to, to England, the stress levels, my stress levels are heightened and there's almost like a bleed off from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm, in, you know, when I'm in Saudi Arabia, the people seem to be, or certainly the people I'm engaging with, are less stressed and they, they have a, a different mindset that focuses on family and work is, is a byproduct. Yeah. Um, whereas over here, it's, it's I've got to work for my family. I've got to work for something and therefore the focus is on work and that can be quite draining, I think. 
Yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, a big part of you know what we're trying to do is is kind of tackle the stigma in the workplace around mental health, but also address kind of burnout, address everything that you've kind of mentioned. Um, what's your kind of take on it? You know, what do you think companies need to start doing to better the mental health of their employees? I think first thing I would love to see some more mental health first aiders. I've seen this concept mm. here, and I think it's fantastic. I really do like that the, the idea. But one of the things I can turn around and say, uh, Paul, I've just had a look at your uh, performance measures and your KPIs are, you know, they're quite poor. You know, you're going to have to shape up because if you don't, then obviously we're going to have to have a conversation. It could lead to this. Mm. Or I could turn around and say, Paul, I've had a look at your performance measures. I had a look at it and clearly you know, something might be going on. What can I do to support? Mm. How are you feeling? A change in that. You ask someone how they're feeling and they say, well, then they can, again, that's a connection. I've just asked yeah. you a question. It's the same thing, but what do I want to do? I want to improve your performance, clearly. Mm. But if I ask you the question, how are you feeling? And I've highlighted the performance and I'm more focused on you. I'm talking about adding value to you. Yeah. How are you going to uh, feel about the work? If I tell you, I'm not happy with your performance and you need to, how does that affect your mental health? Yeah. 100%. Not at all. Yeah, I think that's so true. And again, it's just a change in approach. Absolutely. And do you think from your experience and what I've seen is there's still this one size fits all approach of this is how we treat everyone. But as you say, everyone is so different. Like what you was motivated by now is probably different to what you was motivated by when you was 21. Clearly, absolutely. And it's about asking those valuable questions to find out how that person is, what are they going through at the moment, how can I support? But I look at mental health as currently we're all reactive. Mm. And I think that, you know, if there's no point in me going to the gym and I'm getting close there now, when, yeah. I'm, when I'm now 80 kilos, you yeah. know, I need to be going to the gym now. You know, I need to be going with it. And you'll get, you'll get a gym instructor, you'll go and get a personal trainer and you'll do that for your health. You know, we'll go to the dentist and, and we'll go to the dentist and we'll have our checkups and we'll have our cleans, etc. And we do that. But too often we just react too much. And mental health is one of those areas. If we could take mental health and label it in such a way that it would be cool to train your mind, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. Can you see that happening? Because again, this is the same with me. I think mental health... I always do it in my in my talks. What does mental mean to you? Like, what does the word mental mean? Yeah. What does mental health mean? It's always depression, sadness, very sort of negative associations. When you say what does physical health mean, it's gym, you know, exercise, more kind of positive um, associations with it. And I try and sort of, I hopefully would see a point where mental health is more discussed openly, and it's more of a I don't know, not, not core in a way, but it's just that we can talk more openly about it. Do you I, see that ever being a case? I, I do, yeah. absolutely. I, and I think we're certainly, when I look back, um, I can see things progress probably more since since I went to, to, to Saudi Arabia. So I've been there for six years now. And so when I come back, you know, the mental health first aiders didn't exist mm. six years ago. And now I'm seeing quite a few of them. There are these programs on now that, that they can do this. And I love seeing that. I just think there needs to be some good dialogue with some senior people to say how we can support um, mental health where we are being proactive in our approach 
And what can we do? What sort of discussions can we do around that? Then it will help the people that are struggling, who need the reactive mental health first aiders, for example, or they need to see psychiatrists or psychologists. Those are more likely to come out and say, actually, I do need some help. Yeah. And I think that would be quite powerful. Yeah, I think it comes back to that sort of short-term sort of results over long-term change. Mm-hmm. I think the reactive side of it is very short-term, isn't it? Whereas long-term, if you're changing the environment, changing the culture, it will take time, it will take sort of, it might cost money, but eventually you probably won't be reacting as much as you Absolutely. Are. It can save an absolute fortune. If, if industry, and there's, the problem is there's not enough quantitative and qualitative research that's done on this. So currently, businesses are looking at numbers and figures, and there needs to be somebody to step forward. Not me, because my PhD is going to be in Saudi and on another field. Um, but there needs somebody to step forward and say, well, let's go and have a look at the research here, and then see if we can bring in some accountants and see if we can find the figures that says, this is really good for you. Do you realize how much money you're going to save on, on, on recruitment costs, for example, HR costs, you know, sickness days? If somebody comes and asks, how are you feeling? And you're going to go, wow, do you know what, Gov? Not only am I going to run through brick walls for you, but I'm going to be talking to all my colleagues and saying how supportive you were. And therefore, we won't want to be sick because we feel bad about doing it. If you're just focused on business and what's important to you and your KPIs, then I'm going to be focused on me. And then there's a disconnect between the company, the corporate world, and the individual. Yeah. If the corporate world focuses on individuals, then the individuals will focus on the corporate world. Yeah, 100%. And even Claremont, these guys are, are nice to give us this space. Um, you know, their staff have said, Mark is very proactive with mental health. He wants to sort of make some change. And one of the staff members was telling us earlier how in our last job, they had KPIs, the same as they've got here. Yeah. But in this job, she feels more valued because this afternoon she needs to go and look for a flat and they've said, yeah, sure. You know, and it's more, she can get her work done, but she still feels more valued. She feels, she feels more flexible. She doesn't feel like she's just a piece in, you know, a huge machine that's churning out a huge amount of money. And it doesn't take away from the business because she still has sort of targets, but she feels valued and she wants to actually deliver on them as well. Making a human is is just so valuable. And Mm. I I think there are a lot of top CEOs will probably agree. I think that, you know, some of the top companies, I look at Richard Branson and it was lovely when he was, he was being interviewed by somebody and they talked about um, the customers and he goes, my customers is, is most important thing. Customer comes first. And he said, but it's not who you think. My customers are my employees, mm. and I focus on my customers because they'll focus on the other customers, which in turn benefits me. Yeah. And I and I love that. Yeah. So true. Let's talk about emotional intelligence as well, just quickly. So you know, I was reading on the way up here on the train about how emotional intelligence is something that companies need to start focusing on over sort of IQ, academic intelligence. Mm. Um, they said people who are emotionally intelligent make more money throughout their kind of careers. What's your kind of take on it? Right. So I, it depends on, on the research out there. Daniel Gorman was, was the, uh, he wasn't the first. It started with Peter Savile, uh, and, and who was the... I think he's the president of Yale now, I, I, I believe. But anyway, some of his work was done. Gorman was the one that sort of made EQ sexy. He was the one that said. And he actually got, he gets misquoted quite often. And they say that 80% is of our success is attributed to emotional intelligence. That's not quite what happened. When they did their research, they found that 20% 
was attributed to IQ. Now, it doesn't mean that 80 is the EQ. There are multiple intelligences. We can look at Dr. Howard Gardner's work, who, who looks at multiple aspects of the brain. And, and we have to look at what's, how do we you know, quantify and qualify success. The one thing I will probably say is um, you can have a look at people with high IQs. So if we had a look, and I did some research a long, long time ago, and I looked at master's degree students from Oxford and Cambridge, and we, we came across some of the names of the, the top students, and I've, and I've never heard of them. Mm. And yet other people who are really successful in industry naturally have these this high EQs, and maybe, and I, I bring you back to Richard Branson again, you know, with, with his, I think, extremely emotionally intelligent, able to connect with people, empathize, and I believe that most of the people, when we look at the top CEOs and the people that are running our countries, mm. have an enormous amount of emotional intelligence. Yeah. And what do you think, I know as well you've done a bit, and does this, do you think this starts at school? Do you think it starts there? I wish it started at school. I think... Because school is very much like, I always say that it focuses on academic intelligence, not emotional intelligence. It's, I, I think in my generation, there was a lot of social and emotional learning naturally built into play. You know, I mean, I, I went to a primary school with 28 children. I'm not talking about class. I'm talking about a whole school. Turf mm -hmm. school had 28 children. And the focus was purely on uh, you developed relationships. Now, I think we've become more connected with the mobile world, the Internet, etc. But we've never been more disconnected. And that, that's a real shame. Schools more and more so are being judged and KPIs. They want to do social and emotional learning. Talk to the teachers. Mm -hmm. to, you know, I, I've spoken to, I did a tour in South Africa, for example. There's a thousand teachers come through this, educational leaders, and they're all saying the same thing. We want to do this, but then we are judged on our results. Parents in the, in the private sector have to take responsibility for this mm -hmm. because as much as they say, this is what we want, They'll soon knock on the doors if we're not focused on giving the kids the A's. Yeah, and we are failing our children globally. There was a, a piece of research done in the UK on GCSE students. They took the top 10 percentile, the A star and A grades. Then they did the same exam three months later and 83% went below the failure grade. We're effectively conditioning short-term memory, which is great if you want a job in maybe the service yeah. industry, but but it's not great for out-of-the-box thinking and you know building relationships so i truly feel that we need to start focusing and if they're not going to put it into the curriculum at least drop it in so these guys are developing their emotional literacy they're supporting um, empathy they're understanding a number of different attributes around emotional intelligence and i think that's got to be the way forward if we are to grow you know as a nation yeah, 100%. Do you think that's taken the exams away, in a way, or having some, but not making school and your success at school all about the grades that you get at the end of it? Is that kind of where you're going with that? Well, let's have a look at this. Let's have a look at industry. Industry no longer looks at how many sales, for example. They've chosen a balanced scorecard method, which looks at the human element as well as the, the facts and figures. And they blend those two together, and it makes them more effective in industry. Why on earth are we not doing that for our yeah. children? Why are we looking at and saying, you know, this particular box, which means your ability to have an awesome STM is what's going to validate you in your life. 
and, and, it, and, it, and it's wrong. There was a recent survey done in, I think it was by The Independent, February 2018. They've, they've, they've sourced this out with companies throughout the UK. One of the, one of the points which I took from this was it said, a master's degree qualification holds very little value in today's industry. We've got to get on board. We've got to stop thinking, you know, uh, we've got to reverse engineer this. When I was a young, young boy, my dad would say, go to school, work hard, get your GCSEs, and you'll go to college. And he was right. He then said, work hard, get your A-levels, and you'll go to university. And again, he's correct. Degree, work hard, and then you'll get a job. And he was right. But I can't say that to my children. I can't do that anymore. And, And I'm looking at people throughout and, and we are, we're failing our kids globally because we're not preparing them properly for life after education. Yeah, and then that kind of translates into the workplace later on as well, doesn't it, massively. I could talk about this for ages, Carl. Is there anything, um, kind of wrapping up, is there anything you kind of want to add to it as well? No, I mean, I, I, this is, it's just a pleasure to be here, really. So It's, it's, it's very interesting. I could talk about this stuff. One thing I'd love. I would love to see this in schools globally. Mm-hmm. So, Carl, thank you for coming in and sharing all of that. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the comments below. Don't forget to share it, and I'll see you all in an episode very soon. Thank you very much.